And our scriptural reading comes from John chapter 14, verses 16 to 30. Let me read it aloud. <clears throat> Hear the word of the Lord. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to you remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray t together and let's ask the, uh, the, the Spirit to open our eyes to his word. God, just as we read, you are the Spirit of truth. Uh, you are the one who continues to teach us and you make this word alive to us. And so we pray that as we look at your word today, Make this word alive to us. Help us to see clearly with spiritual eyes uh, what uh, you have to say to us today. Minister to our hearts through the power of this word. And sometimes we, uh, we fail to see or to recognize or to believe in the power of God uh, through his spirit and through his word. And so we ask God that you would convict us of these things today as we sit under the preaching of the word. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Uh, there's this uh, New Testament scholar, his name is Gordon Fee, and Gordon Fee is a pretty remarkable person in a couple respects. Uh, Gordon Fee has, I think, the respect of these uh, different camps, so I know some of you, maybe you come from a more Presbyterian conservative background and this, uh, the gifts of the Holy Spirit and things like that are kind of foreign to you, you may not even believe it, and that's okay, uh, but there's a, a whole other group of folks, uh, the charismatic Pentecostal types, and they, they fully believe in uh, what they call uh, sign gifts or gifts of wonder. And uh, you have these two camps, and usually they, uh, they are far apart, and they don't get along, and uh, they have disagreements. In fact, I have a, a classmate who is now one of the pastors planting a church in East Harlem, and he comes out of a Pentecostal denomination. And he was telling me that in one of their newsletters, uh, they have like the, ten, the top 10 threats to Christianity, and like number four on that, is uh, something called Calvinism, which is a system of theology that typically Reformed and Presbyterian people, and even uh, our church, we come from that tradition, uh, believe. So he would say, uh, you know, according to uh, his denomination, that, that's what they believe, right? Uh, is a danger to Christianity. But the reason why Gordon Fee is a pretty remarkable person and a very unique person is because he actually has the ability to bridge these two uh, groups together. So 
Uh, Gordon Fee, I mean, you have this academic scholar, respected scholar, typically what happens is all the Presbyterians show up and they want to hear him talk and learn from him. Uh, on the other side, you have somebody who is uh, really gifted in healing and deliverance and they give a talk and you have all the charismatic people come and show up and they want to hear and learn from them. Gordon Fee actually has the ability to uh, kind of reach and touch both groups. So, uh, so you may know that one of the things that Good News Church does is we are supporting or we have given support to... Um, to a theological institute that uh, a few people are trying to start in Bulgaria. And we named it after this guy named Gordon Fee. And one of the reasons we named it after Gordon Fee is because even in the mission field, there is this great distrust between uh, the more Presbyterian reform types and the more charismatic types. And so we're hoping that uh, this theological institute will be able to bring greater unity to the church because uh, in each group there is probably something lacking if, if uh, what unity does is it allows God to use the fullness of the gifts that he has dispensed to the entire body to the church for the edification of the body and for uh, the work of God and so uh, that's one of the things that we're trying to do as we support this uh, institute the Gordon Fee Institute in Bulgaria and so uh, I believe Good News Church in the past, maybe last year, we contributed some funds, and part of those funds were used to translate one of the books Gordon Fee wrote um, into the Bulgarian language. Now, why do I talk about Gordon Fee right now? Well, I actually got to meet him because Pastor John held a dinner and wanted to honor Gordon Fee. And uh, at this dinner, people shared about the impact that his work, his academic works, and his books had on their lives. I even got to share with him how his commentaries had an effect on me and yeah my, my sermons take about 10 to 20 hours to prepare as well and when I read commentaries a lot of times they're kind of dry and boring but Gordon Fee's commentaries right sometimes there's like these gold nuggets and this is my system of, of reading if it's a good point I do one check mark if it's a like a really good point I'll do two check marks but if it's something that preaches to my heart I do exclamation point right <laughs> those are my note-taking Gordon Fee's commentaries, right? I have a lot of check marks and double check marks, but I also have a lot of exclamation points because it's something that just like preaches to my heart and ministers to my heart, and you wouldn't expect that from a commentary. One of those books, and as I was preparing for the series, you know, he wrote a very academic book on the Holy Spirit in the letters of Paul, and he also wrote a popular level book on that. So if you want the title of that, and if you're interested in reading that, uh, I can recommend that to you. But uh, one of the things that he says in uh, that book is well, what the contemporary church needs most is to be able to bridge our theological knowledge of the Holy Spirit with our experiential knowledge of the Holy Spirit. And oftentimes there is a gap between that, which is why uh, I thought it was important just to have people in the congregation share their testimonies and their experience of the person of the Holy Spirit. Because in this season of life, what I'm hoping that we can do as a church is bring that gap closer together and to bring our theological knowledge and our understanding to our experiential knowledge. Now, here's what I think. Whenever you talk about somebody's experience, um, maybe there's a little bit of, I don't know, skepticism involved, and it's kind of like, well, you can't really build something on experience. It's not objective. Uh, maybe that person uh, experienced something that was unique to them. Maybe they, I don't know, uh, it was an illusion or there, something happened where they're not really seeing things correctly. And so maybe in, uh, if you're the skeptical type, you're like, well, I can't trust uh, experience, but I have to uh, base something objective. And, you know, to a certain degree, that's true. But the other thing you should know is actually the experiential part is really important. And one of the places that you can turn to is for example, in Ephesians 3, when Paul lifts up a prayer for the church in Ephesus, 
One of the things he prays for is that they would know the love of God so that they may be filled with the fullness of God. Now that prayer is not a prayer saying, oh, may they have intellectual knowledge about the love of God and uh, penal substitutionary atonement and all of these things and how God uh, loved us theologically. Paul's prayer is actually that they would experience the love of God. That's what he's asking for, that they would experience the love of God in such a powerful way that, and get this, that they would be filled with the fullness of God. And so this is what I'm, I'm hoping for today. Regardless of where you are, regardless of uh, how you uh, think about some of these things, uh, that you would at least be open to maybe what you believe that the Bible says about the person of the Holy Spirit and that the prayer is that God would allow us to experience him in the person of the Holy Spirit in the way that the Holy Spirit wants to manifest himself to us. So that's why we are going through this series on the Holy Spirit, and uh, I've, I've just been asking that just be open and be seeking, and uh, wherever you land, it's up to God, but just be open and seeking in terms of how the Holy Spirit can minister to your hearts. Now, the way I have this uh, thought out as a series is we're basically just going to answer two questions. Uh, what you heard from James is probably a lot of like the work of the Holy Spirit, and we'll get to those about spiritual gifts later on. Uh, but in the first uh, maybe couple of weeks in the series, what I want to focus on is the person of the Holy Spirit, basically asking the question, who is the Holy Spirit? And we started by looking at this passage in John 14 last week, and I wanted to emphasize to you that, yes, the Holy Spirit is a person, the third person of the Trinity, the triune God that we worship, that we claim to worship, that Orthodox Christianity has worshipped uh, for many, many centuries. And uh, I wanted to also get across that the Holy Spirit is not like a higher power or some impersonal force or like a battery that you plug into and uh, gives us energy. The Holy Spirit's a person, and therefore we have to relate to him. We have to engage with him. We can grieve the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is one who intercedes on our behalf. And uh, as we, uh, I guess, walk this walk of faith and kind of grow in our understanding and our knowledge of who God is, that we would also come to know all three persons of, of God in the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. But in this particular season, we are focusing on this third person of the Holy Spirit. Now, if you look in the first uh, two verses, uh, let me read that for you. Uh, Jesus says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. Just in that one little uh, sentence right there that Jesus gives, um, we actually learn a great deal about who the Holy Spirit is. And we're going to touch on some of these things. So what we'll learn is that the Holy Spirit is a spirit of truth, that the Holy Spirit is our helper or advocate, and the Holy Spirit is a gift who keeps on giving to the church. In our culture, um, people throw around the word truth a lot, right? And that word truth is uh, personalized because we live in such a hyper-individualistic society. And therefore, people will say, well, you have your truth, I have my truth, uh, I'm going to share my truth, and you have to hear my truth, you have your truth. I think what they really mean is like perspective, uh, which is true to some degree, right? You have a perspective, I have a perspective, everybody has a perspective. But I think when we say the word truth, I think what it uh, maybe does is 
People say it's my truth to give it a little bit more power and authority to their perspective. And I think I understand the frustration that would lead somebody to say something like that because what they're saying is this. There is just so much information in the world and there are just so many perspectives out there. It's, it's hard to know what's real. It's hard to know uh, what we can just say is definitively true. So out of that frustration, uh, maybe this is what, how postmodern came to be. Out of that frustration, people kind of just said, uh, there's no such thing uh, as an objective truth, but everything is reduced to a person's perspective, and therefore it becomes my truth, it becomes your truth. And uh, in my opinion, I actually don't think that is very helpful, and I think that's wrong for a variety of ways, but here's what I think that um, people like that have right. I think what they have right is there is kind of a frustration there in knowing what's true or how you can uh, be convicted of what's true because there really is a ton of knowledge out there. The, the world is vast. The, the number of cultures out there is vast. And uh, especially in a place like New York where you're interacting with diverse people each and every day, you're probably exposed to uh, these new perspectives all the time. And as you're exposed to these new perspectives, if you're a humble person, you, you probably conclude, wow, there is no way that I can definitively claim and say that what I know to be true uh, is going to be true for everybody. And so there's this frustration uh, that people have there about not being able to do that. Now, the reason why I think that feeling of frustration is right is because uh, it, what it says is this. We, we are a finite people. We cannot know everything in the world. Our, our knowledge is limited, our information is limited, and therefore, in and of ourselves, we actually can't know truth. What is truth? The complete truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Maybe at best, we can know partial truths. But here's what the Christian faith would say to that. That part is true, which is why you need somebody who does know everything. You need somebody outside of you to reveal what is true to you. And that's, that's who God is. That's who the person of the Holy Spirit is. That's why the Spirit is the Spirit of truth. One of the things that he does is he reveals truth to us. He teaches truth to us. He convicts us of truth so that we can know what's true because it comes from God. Now, 2 Timothy 3.16 uh, is a verse that some of you may know, but it says all scripture is God-breathed and it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And there's a Greek word in that verse in 2 Timothy 3.16 that is translated as God-breathed, and uh, the word is thebnustos, okay? Uh, that word is unique in the New Testament. It's the only time that it's used in the New Testament. And the reason why it's an important word, and people would have trouble uh, translating it, some people in the past, uh, especially inspired from the Latin Vulgate, would say it's uh, inspired, right? All scripture is inspired by God. But the reason why uh, God breathe is a great translation of that word is because when you break down that word, theos is God, and uh, nustos, which comes from uh, a verb neo, which means to breathe, uh, what it's saying is that all scripture is basically like the, the breath of God. Now, the reason why that's interesting is this. You know, in John chapter 20, Jesus does something really interesting. Does anybody know what he does uh, to his disciples? He breathes on them. <laughs> Read it in John chapter 20. Jesus breathes on his disciples, and after he breathes on his disciples, do you know what he says? Receive the Holy Spirit. 
Now, I don't know exactly what the connections are, but there is some kind of connection between the breath of God and the Holy Spirit in ter- and in, in Scripture, and all, all of these come together. And I think the reason why uh, a Christian can say, I believe in the Bible, like James just shared, like, I believe in the Bible, I believe that the Bible is true. Uh, you know, when people say, how can Christians, like, put so much stock in some kind of ancient book that was written thousands and thousands of years ago, in a sense... I, I can empathize with that. that. That makes sense. That sentiment makes sense. But if the Holy Spirit is real, if God is real and the Holy Spirit is real and what the Holy Spirit did was breathe out truth through the word, then yeah, we can say uh, with confidence that the word of God, the Bible, is truth to us because it's not simply a book, but it is the breath of God empowered and revealed to us by way of the Holy Spirit. Now, inevitably, I think everybody during the course of their lives, even if you grew up in the church, even if you've been in church services for a long time, uh, at some point, you're probably going to ask yourself uh, a question. You're going to say, is this really true? Uh, You hear things in church, you read things in the Bible, you go, is this really true? Even in the Bible, the miraculous things happen. People are healed. The blind see. The lame walk. Leprosy is removed. Demons are cast out. And for some of us, it's so disconnected to our experience of the world. Maybe you say, did this really happen? Is this true? Did Jesus really rise from the dead? And then from there, if you, if you ask those kinds of questions, then you inevitably have to ask other kinds of questions like this. Did Jesus really die on the cross for me? Are my sins really forgiven? Uh, is there uh, really a resurrection that awaits for me after my death? Is, uh, is Jesus really better to follow? Uh, is it really better to obey his commands? And you see, in order to answer these kinds of things in the affirmative, the one thing you need is you have to be convicted, yes, these things are true. It's not just perspective, but objectively, these things are true. That is the role of the Holy Spirit. That's why he is a spirit of truth. One of the things that he does is he communicates truth to us. He convicts us of these truths so that we might know in a deep sense that the word of God is true to us. Even um, when somebody becomes a a believer, um, you know, it has nothing to do with how eloquent we are with our words or how well we can argue someone uh, to become a Christian. But at the end of the day, it's, it's the work of the Holy Spirit that convicts somebody's heart. Now, I, for one, think that's good news because uh, you know, I don't always know the right words to say. I don't always know the right responses to have. But if the Holy Spirit is working in somebody's heart, the Holy Spirit uses the truth of the gospel, the words of the gospel, the proclamation of the gospel to convict somebody in their heart. And that's why it's good that the Spirit is the Spirit of truth. But the Spirit is also something else. The Holy Spirit is our advocate. And uh, you see it on our passage. It doesn't say advocate. And the reason it doesn't say advocate is because of uh, the way the English translators translated this word. Uh, in our passage, it actually says helper. Uh, and this is also one of those words that can is a little bit hard to translate. It's a Greek word, parakletos. Uh, But the reason why this word is not easy to to translate is because uh, there might not be uh, any kind of real substantial analogy to what we have in English. But 
I think the better way to translate this word is advocate because I think what isn't in view is uh, a sort of a legal context. Uh, in our culture, in our legal system, the way the law works is you have a representative, which you call an attorney. You hire an attorney. That attorney is an expert in law, and they speak on your behalf, and they defend you, or they, they prosecute somebody uh, according to the law, and you sit before the judge, and what the judge does is make sure that your, the attorneys are playing by the right rules of the game. And it's a highly professionalized thing. But you know, in the Lord's Day, uh, the legal system was a little bit different in that you didn't have these highly trained and skilled attorneys who were master of the law and who could argue your case for you but a judge would basically uh, decide or determine uh, somebody's guilt or innocent and it would be based on the testimonies of eyewitnesses right so in the ancient world eyewitness testimonies were incredibly important in terms of uh, adjudicating a case when it says the Holy Spirit is our advocate it is basically saying this the Holy Spirit is the one who will testify on our behalf he is uh, the supreme witness and he will in a sense argue our case to the judge on our behalf and that's what it means when it says the holy spirit is an advocate but there's this little word uh, before that where jesus says he will give you another helper another advocate which assumes and presupposes that we already have an advocate because the holy spirit is another advocate and who is that first advocate? It's none other than Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus Christ, he is the first advocate who argues on our behalf. And do you know how he argues? He says this. He brings a case before God and he says, I can testify to you that this person should not be proclaimed guilty, that this person should not be sentenced to, to eternal punishment. I can argue that and I can bear witness to that. How? Because I died on the cross you i have given my blood on behalf of these people and if god if you are righteous if you are uh, just at all you cannot punish the same sin twice and that's that's a gospel message and that's how jesus functions as our first advocate but here jesus says this uh, not only do you have the advocate in jesus christ but you also have another advocate in the holy spirit Jesus sends this other advocate to be on our side. And you know what that means? It means this, that we always have somebody who is testifying on our behalf. Just think about that for a moment. We always have somebody who is testifying on our behalf. You know, in the Bible, there are generally three things that Christians are called to contend against, the world, the flesh, and the devil. When the world condemns you and when the world says things like this, you are not respectable, you are not worthy, what the Holy Spirit is doing as our advocate is bearing testimony and saying this, that's wrong. You are worthy. You are beautiful. You are respectable. Not because of who you are or what you've achieved, but come look at Jesus and look at what he achieved for you. And because of that, you're worthy. Don't be condemned by the world. Probably more applicable to our congregation when our hearts condemn ourselves and when we look at our failures, when we look at the things that we haven't achieved in life that we wanted to achieve in life, when we uh, look at other people and compare ourselves to others and what they have and how they are and we say, Ugh, I'm not good enough. 
I'm not beautiful enough. I'm not successful enough. I haven't achieved enough. I'm not at the place in life where I am supposed to be and therefore I'm unworthy. Even at that moment, the Holy Spirit is a constant advocate for us, ministering to us and speaking on our behalf and saying, no, 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 that's not true. You are worthy. You are beautiful. Why? Again, look at Jesus. You're worthy because of him. You're beautiful because of him. He has made you beautiful by his work and by his blood. And finally, maybe the most unfamiliar to many of us, but uh, we live in a world that is spiritual, and there is a spiritual realm. And in the spiritual realm, there is a real-life enemy, Satan. And Satan is always seeking to condemn our hearts. And one of the things that Satan does is he lies and he deceives. And he says, he whispers in your ear, come on, do you think, do you think really God is good? God wants you to do this. God wants you to sacrifice this. Do you think God is good? Fear, fear is something that probably hinders us from coming to God and fully surrendering to God. We probably give a half surrender to God, but there is no such thing as a half surrender to God. But because there's a, this kind of fear of what might happen if we fully surrender to God, uh, that's what Satan's doing. D- uh, don't give everything, right? Ha- uh, have a little control uh, in your own hands. D- don't submit everything. Don't surrender everything. Just do halfway, and that's okay. And these are some of the things that Satan wants to do. And then Uh, He condemns us and he says, you know, does God really love you? Look at your situation. Look at your circumstance. Is God really good if this is what your life looks like now and today? And that's Satan. But here's uh, perhaps one of the greatest things of all. The Holy Spirit is our advocate and our power and our strength against the devil as well. You see, Satan has been defeated, and if you read places like Revelation 2, Jesus has thrown Satan down, and what Satan wants to do, because he's angry that he's been thrown down, and what it says in Revelation 12, his time is almost come to an end, his time is almost up, so what he wants to do is attack, attack, attack the church, the offspring of the woman is the imagery there, and the Holy Spirit is a continual advocate on our behalf, constantly speaking for us, testifying for us and protecting us. There is this beautiful imagery in uh, Zechariah chapter 2, and it's talking about Jerusalem. And um, in this imagery, uh, it says that Jerusalem will be inhabited as villages without walls. And walls are, in the ancient world, meant for protection. And it's saying Jerusalem's not going to have any walls. So, how is Jerusalem going to be protected? Well, God says this, I will be to her a wall of fire around, all around, and I will be the glory in her midst. And even there, you know what God is saying to the people of Israel, that your protection is not going to be by these physical walls, but your protection is going to be by my spirit, and my spirit will be a wall of fire as a protection around you. And so here is why the Holy Spirit is uh, such an important gift to the church, Because not only do we have an advocate in Jesus Christ who uh, stands in our defense by his very blood presenting a case for us saying we are righteous, worthy, and uh, uh, accepted before a righteous and holy and just to judge, but we have another advocate who continually speaks on our behalf in our lives and in this world. And that's a great gift to us, which leads to uh, the final point. The Holy Spirit really is a great gift. 
Jesus says he will ask the Father and the Father will give you another helper or give you another advocate. Now, I'm, I'm not going to say that much um, today um, because this is something that we'll revisit later on. But the Holy Spirit is a great gift. Now, if you think about the word charismatic, um, you know, we, we use it in different ways and different Christian traditions use it in a certain way. But charismatic in its core, uh, it comes from the word charis, which is a word that means grace or gift. And just as Jesus' forgiveness and salvation to us has been offered as a gift that we are to receive, so too is the Holy Spirit given to us as a gift that we are to receive. But here's the thing. Our, our relationship with gifts can be highly dysfunctional, right? Just in, not in a spiritual realm, but just in general. Uh, sometimes we receive a gift, but we're not really thankful for that gift. Uh, you know, it's uh, Christmas, and someone gets us socks for Christmas because they don't know what else to get us. And uh, our response is we say, oh, gee, socks, thanks. Um, but then in our hearts, we're not really thankful for receiving that gift. Why? Because we actually don't value that gift. We say to ourselves, well, I could have probably bought socks myself, and I would have picked out socks that I like, the brand that I like, the color that I like. Uh, but I'm probably never really going to use this gift and wear this gift and uh, it doesn't match any of my outfits, and that's kind of a dysfunctional relationship that maybe we have with gifts. Or sometimes we don't like receiving gifts because gifts can create a sense of obligation. Uh, if somebody gives you a gift, maybe your first thought is, oh, this person got me a gift, now I gotta get this person a gift uh, for their birthday. And maybe you receive a tie on Father's Day if you, if you are a father and you receive a tie on Father's Day from your child, and uh, it's not a really great tie, and you don't think it's, it looks very good, but now you have this obligation. You gotta use the gift because your child is gonna be like, uh, Daddy, when are you gonna wear my tie, right? And you just wear the tie. Uh, my children, by the way, haven't got me ties, so this is not a personal narrative. Uh, but sometimes we don't like gifts because maybe they create a sense of obligation to steward that gift that we don't want. Uh, our dysfunctional relationship with, with gifts in a general sense stems from uh, a place that says this, I, I don't really care about the gift. I don't really value the gift. It's not meaningful to me. And the result of that is uh, we don't have deep gratitude in our hearts. The result of that is we don't really want to use or steward the gift that has been given to us. The Holy Spirit has been given to the church as a gift. The person of the Holy Spirit has been given to the church as a gift. Now, for some of us, maybe we don't value him and therefore we have kind of like this half-hearted thanks and uh, we don't really pay attention to him and we say, okay, the Holy Spirit could do these things but I'd rather do it this way, I'd rather do it my way. Maybe we don't want the obligation of receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit because what that means is we have to live a spirit-filled life. And a spirit-filled life, maybe to our flesh, is not something that we want in this moment. Maybe we don't want to surrender. Maybe we don't want to sacrifice. Maybe we don't want to expose what we have uh, kept in the dark and we don't want to bring it to the light. Uh, maybe we don't want to sing songs, hymns, and spiritual songs. Uh, maybe there are these things that we really don't want 
And uh, we don't want the obligation of that. And not only that, if the Spirit has disseminated gifts in the entirety of the body, we have to use those gifts to serve and to build up the body, right? And to participate in the work of God and the mission of God. Maybe we don't want that obligation. Whatever it is, the one thing we have to do is we have to recognize that the Holy Spirit is given as a gift to us for our good. Not only as a teacher, not only as our advocate, but also one of the ways in which we are able to live a life that God is calling us to live. And by the way, that doesn't mean, ah, I have to do this, I have to give this up, blah, blah, blah. The kind of life that God wants us to live is a life of strength and power, is a life that is not living and driven by fear. It's a life full of joy. Even in this passage, what we see is a life full of peace, a life filled with power. All of these things are the kind of life, is the kind of life that God wants us to live. And we can't do it in and of ourselves. We can't. We try, but we can't. But the Holy Spirit is given to us to the church so that these things are made possible. Uh, I say this all the time. We, we are, uh, you know, people in New York, a lot of people have type A personalities. A lot of you went to very, uh, you know, got very uh, high-level educations. A lot of you have uh, careers in which you've been very successful. Um, you know, not the stereotypes, but Asians in particular tend to be very achievement-oriented, right? So I think one of the, the, the struggles of uh, our particular congregation is I don't think we know how to receive well. Uh, I think we're always thinking, what do I have to do, right? Uh, how, do I, how do I get to the next step, or how do I reach the next goal? But here's the thing. If Christianity is about grace, if Christianity is a truly charismatic faith in the sense of the word of uh, we, have, we receive the gifts that God gives to us, we have to take a posture of being able to receive, saying, God, you've given, help me to receive. And the right way to receive should yield gratitude, should yield worship, should yield stewardship, should yield a deep pursuit of God himself. And so perhaps that's what we can do and that's what we can pray for today, even in this moment, and say, you have given so much. You have given your son. You have given atonement for sin. You have given salvation. You have given eternal life. But it doesn't end there because the Holy Spirit is the gift that continues to give to his church today so that we can be empowered to do his work and the work of mission. <laughs> and he wants to give to us. Let's receive what he Let's receive him and let's receive what he has to give us as well. Let's pray together.